sermon number 598, God at the Cross. Preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown, February 27, 1972. The text, Matthew, the 27th chapter, the 54th verse. Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew, the 27th chapter, beginning to read at the 45th verse. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the standard buyers hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into this city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The Roman centurion and the soldiers with him on Golgotha Hill, that dreadful Friday, which now we call good, were observers not only of another one of the first forms of execution called crucifixion, they were not just witnesses to another death in Jesus on the cross. They saw God. And that's the way it was supposed to be. For though we cannot fully understand it, let alone explain it, we Christians believe that God somehow, someway, was in Jesus Christ. We say this not because it sounds right or because we want to say it, we say it on the testimony of many great sources. It was the testimony of the prophecy, you'll remember, that, that the angel gave to Joseph when he was deliberating whether or not to marry Mary, who was already pregnant. The prophecy from Isaiah which says, Remember, unto us a child will be born, and a, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And then after Jesus was born and was preaching and teaching, we have his own testimony as to who he was. Whosoever hath seen me hath seen my Father who is in heaven. I and my Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man can come to the Father but by me. I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Whatsoever things I have said unto you, I do so not on my own authority, but by the Spirit of the Father that dwells in me. Jesus believed that God was in him. So we believe, and it has become the testimony of the confessions of the church over these last several hundreds of years to believe that God was somehow, some way, known only to God himself in Jesus Christ. That's why this morning, as whenever we repeat the Apostle Creed, we put in that, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. The Nicene Creed, though, does it better where it speaks of Jesus Christ, not only as God's Son, but God of God, light of light, a very God of very God. God was in Jesus. And the centurion and the other soldiers saw this. They saw what God wants all of us to see as we look at Jesus Christ on the cross. He wants us to see not only his son, but himself in his son. And the centurion and the other soldiers saw what God wants anyone to see when he looks at the cross. Now, when we say that they saw God. We say this in a very unique way. God is a spirit. We know that. No man hath seen God at any time. But when we say that in the cross of Jesus you see God, the centurion saw him, it means that they did not take a photograph of him. It means that those soldiers saw him in his mind, his feelings, his attributes, his power and his glory. In the cross of Jesus, not only those soldiers, but any soldier of the cross today can see these same attributes in God the Father. They saw through the cross of Jesus the sovereignty of God. They didn't call it that. They didn't know what to call it. You see, those people were not theologians. They weren't even Christians. But they saw in the cross, the cross of Jesus, what we polite Presbyterians call the sovereignty of God. They couldn't understand it nor explain it any more than can we. They were not sure, just like many of us, whether or not the cross 
And Jesus having to die upon it was a part of God's plan that God caused such a horrible thing to happen, or whether or not he just allowed it to happen. They couldn't answer those questions. All they know that that figure on the cross, dying or having already died, was somehow still in control of the whole situation. Though everything on that hill was black and wrong and horribly unjust. That figure on the cross was in complete command of the entire situation. Theology for 2,000 years has been trying to argue one way or another as to what the sovereignty of God means. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been going through this riddle trying to understand that either God must be almighty and no good, or he must be all good and not all might. Or as one of our faithful radio listeners sent me this past week a letter asking the same question that they've been asking for many, many hundreds of years, is it possible for God to make a rock so heavy that even he cannot lift it? You see, these questions perhaps are all right in the academic world and in the theory of trying to make sense with words what God is like. But those people on Golgotha Hill looking at Jesus, they didn't understand that. All they knew was that in that person on the cross there was a power that was second to none, that was all-knowing, could do anything, was in complete control of the situation. They had the feeling like anyone who reads about the incident on the hill, that Jesus some way could have prevented it from happening. That God in some way in that person could have changed that whole situation. That Jesus, as he says himself, did not have his life taken from him, but rather voluntarily laid it down. That even though those people meant that deed to be horrible and ugly and evil, God took that horribleness and that ugliness and that evil and turned it around and made it for good. You see, those people didn't have the experience of Easter, like us, to know that they were right and that God, even on Easter morning, proved that he had overcome every enemy, even the worst and most fearful enemy that we have, death. Even death could not contain him. But for some way, in some way, somehow, they saw the sovereignty of God. Maybe it was in the fact that when Christ died, the earth shook with an earthquake, the rocks split, the, the tombs, they were opened. And the report was made that downtown in, in the big temple, the big curtain which separated the sinful people from the holiness of God, it was torn asunder from top to bottom, thus symbolizing to all the world the great gap, the great gulf that existed between the pure God and sinful man was torn asunder and gone forever. 
that which was a barricade to God, to man, between God and man, now was bridged. Maybe it was that, I don't know. But somehow or another, in looking at the cross, Jesus on the cross, they saw the sovereignty, the power, the omnipotence of God. They saw also the compassion of God. These men, they were pagans. But even pagans have theology. They don't call it that. But they had their ideas about God and like many people today, they, they knew that God was good, pure, just, altogether lovely. In him no guile, no wrong. And they knew also that when God created this wonderful world and made men and women and children, to make the universe run the way it should, he created laws. Laws not only for the physical universe, laws like gravity, but he made also laws for the moral universe. Laws both in the natural and in the moral world of man that are inexorable. Laws which cannot be broken or chaos would reign. Laws which cannot be persuaded to be altered in any way. Laws which have from the beginning are now and shall always be the same. And they had the impression, as many of us know from experience, these laws cannot be broken, and if any man tries to break them, he will end up only in breaking himself. But then they had the impression that after God created the world and us, and this system of laws, he either went to bed and took a nap, he went for a walk, or he died. He really no longer cared about man. And then they heard the words, from the cross, from the lips of this Jesus, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that person on the cross, that person who was pure and just, lovely, who never broke a law, whose life was altogether lovely and pure, whose life was like the life of God. That life was crying unto the Father, asking why, why had God forsaken him? Now they didn't know exactly what those words meant. Some said, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Others said, no, he's he, he wanting a drink of water. Men for 2,000 years have been studying those words, and still we cannot agree on what they mean. But one thing that you can be sure they try to interpret unto us is the love, the compassion, the concern that God has for sinners. It was on the cross that we get the picture that God, who is just and pure and holy and who does not break laws and allows laws not to be broken, He has compassion for the lawbreaker.
As Emil Bruner says, God does not wink at sin. He does not take it lightly. He does not like sin, but there's never a time when he does not like the sinner. He understands us. On the cross, Jesus is telling us that God understands what it is when we live in hell. When we feel forsaken and away from our Creator, when we feel separated from any meaning in life, God understands that. He knows how we got there. He knows we can blame it only on ourselves, but he understands it. And he has compassion upon the sinner. He knows what it is, though he has never forsaken us to have the feeling of any man who feels forsaken. It's just like that man I told you about many years ago whose son was tragically killed in an automobile accident and the son was only 22 years old. And the father was heartbroken and distraught and he didn't know what to do and though his pastor was very busy in a conference, nevertheless, without an introduction, he literally threw his body into the midst of that private meeting and he shouted to his pastor, Tell me, tell me, where was God when my son died? And the pastor, with great concern and understanding, sent forth a great eternal principle which comes from the cross. God was the same place he was when his own son died. Understanding and having compassion. This is the kind of God who created us. A God who is just and pure and lovely. Who has never done anything wrong and never will but a God who also understands us and has compassion with us when we forsake him. He descended into hell. That may be an interpretation that God tells us he knows what it is to live with men who are in hell. From the cross they saw not only the power, the sovereignty of God, and that God has a heart of compassion. But as they looked at the cross they saw the God of love. The God of love. The God who gave to us a new meaning and a new interpretation of what is still the greatest thing in the world, love. These men had loved. They knew what it was to love. Many of them had wives. They thought, like you and me, that love is something that you give in response to love. That love means that you appreciate the lovable and the lovely. And then they saw the cross, and they saw God's meaning of love, and that God is love. They saw what Robert Clyde Johnson of Harvard says is God's unconditional love. Love which comes to us, we have neither merited it, deserved it, nor earned it. But God's free love that is given, and it's free because it expects absolutely nothing in return. And we get this from the cross. The words which Jesus spoke 
which God spoke through Jesus on the cross in words of forgiveness. When Jesus said to those people, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, do you realize he put absolutely no condition upon that forgiveness? He did not say, you people down there, you quit persecuting me and I'll forgive you and show you love. He did not demand that they take out the nails, take him from the cross, bind up his wounds and set him free before he would love them. He didn't even ask them to make some atonement and to say even that they were sorry. He just loved them. Loved them in spite of what they were doing. That's love. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that God first loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is why the cross. It took everything in the life and in the death of Jesus Christ to show us God's love. And if Jesus had stopped one step short of death upon the cross, he would have shown that there would have been at least one other thing beyond which love could go, that there was at least one other thing which love could not forgive. That he gave his all to show us and to tell us that there is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in this world or the next that shall ever stop him from loving you and me. The centurion and his soldier friends, they looked at the cross of Jesus and they saw God. Folks, if you have not the cross of Jesus before you, Christ died in vain for you. For if you have not some understanding of the cross. God is sovereign over your life. God has compassion and understanding and God loves you. But you do not see God. Amen. Our Father and our God, as we travel closer to another Calvary experience and look deeper and deeper into the meaning of the cross, O Lord, we claim that promise which you have given that if we lift you up upon the cross, you will draw all men and women and young people unto you. So as people who are looking for meaning in life, May we find it in the cross where we can find the one who has given us life and gives us rebirth through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and your own self. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the cross where we know God, and the power of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.